Welcome to episode 257 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, we've got a faith-filled episode coming up. Actually, also filled with lots of bad puns, that just being one of them. We're going to talk about faith today, but... Let's talk about faith, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That just came to me. I should probably edit that out. No, we're definitely keeping that. all the songs I could have picked, that was not the one I should have picked. We're we're definitely (laughs) keeping that. I think when Paul spoke about redeeming the times, this is principally what he had in mind. That was absolutely incredible. Honestly, that's going to be the best thing that anybody's going to hear this entire thing. Yeah. We should just well, well it's, until it's next not quite time. as good because the listeners can't see the little dance that I did along <laughs> with did, it. So you, you had listen, brothers and sisters, Tony did this like <laughs> shimmy that was right on point. It was actually really good. It didn't look awkward at all. It looked like strangely comfortable. Yeah. It, I mean it was. I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> Lucy Lucy here. <laughs> all right. Well, we're gonna talk about faith. But of course, before we do that, we've got to talk about affirmations and denials. We've got a whole new set for everybody. So what do you want to do first? Negative, let's, positive, positive, negative. How do we want to do this? Let's do denials. And why don't you start? Let's throw oh. everything on topsy turvy. Good. Let's do it. Okay. So I'm coming in hot with a denial this week. I'm going to, I, so I think I'm stuck in where we were last week with this Romans one thing. Maybe all my denials should just be renamed to adventures in Romans one. I got another, not a new, but another, because there's no new adventures in Romans one, right? right? That's like the whole point. So Here's another one. The Wall Street Journal has actually been running a fascinating series of articles this past week called The Facebook Files. I'm not sure if this is behind the paywall or not, but if you can get to it, definitely check these out. Really interesting look at Facebook generally. And I am not trying to dunk on Facebook. I'm just trying to make a general statement, Romans 1 style. I'm denying against this tendency to think that we can educate ourselves into virtue or moral behavior. Right. And I'm quoting or going specifically to this article called Facebook tried to make its platform a healthier place. It got angrier instead. When I read the headline, I actually laughed out loud (laughs) because I just thought, yeah, like there's nothing for the Christian that, that you should be able to to read that and be like, yeah, like that's what I've been saying. But uh, what I think is fascinating about this article and, and our listeners should go and check it out. It's by Keech Heggie and Jeff Horwitz. What's really interesting is that basically Facebook tried very diligently to create an algorithm or to advance its algorithms in such a way that would promote more stable, more wholesome content between people. And basically what they found out is that this human nature, this total depraved human nature always comes forward, always comes to the surface, to the face, and no pun intended. And that's, of course, what happened. So it was like part tragic for me to read, part humorous, if that makes sense, because I think what happens is one, people forget that I think sometimes like to your point last week, like sometimes we have this sense that if we can get computers to do different things for us, they'll be more objective in their nature while forgetting all along that we're the ones programming the computers. (laughs) And even if we apply like machine learning or algorithms, like unsupervised machine learning where machines go through and take a data set and they try to find their own and draw their own conclusions from it and then refine those conclusions to make them better. That still in the end, it always contains bias because we have set it up and we are fallen and broken people. So yeah. at the end of the day, I just thought, oh, Facebook, you silly little Facebook. Like I know that you're <laughs> trying, but I'm denying against this idea that 
computers are math. And I, you know, I love some good math is somehow our savior that we can make this thing above us and beyond us. It'll be objective and transcendent. And then we'll somehow allow us to be more improved moral beings or interact in a more morally or virtuous way simply because it's something that's outside of ourselves. Oh my goodness. That's still Romans one. Like you just can't get out of it. So I'm just denying against that idea. Yeah. It reminds me of that meme. Uh, There's a meme where it's like the first panel of the comic meme is, Someone's like, I just don't know what to do. And the second one is like, just follow your heart. And then it's a picture of like a really dark heart with like fangs. It's like sin. And like, that's, that's it. Like what Facebook doesn't realize is that human equilibrium is being terrible to each other. Like yes, exactly. they're trying to bring us to some level of stability with this algorithm. But if you target human stability, you're going to end up with people treating each other like trash. And that only gets worse when you can do it without like, uh, you know, for like a like like a million Almost years, well, not a million years, for like hundreds and hundreds of years, people couldn't treat each other like trash because if you treat someone like trash, they might like punch you in the face or kill you. And now, like, I can treat people like trash, and no one's probably going to punch me in the face. Someone's probably not right. going to do the work of driving to New Hampshire to find me and punch me in the face. And if they do, <laughs> like, then I'll I'll like have at it. Like, I'll just stand there and let, I'll just take it. But like. The the distance that Facebook creates only magnifies that. And then on top of that, if you target human stability or human equilibrium in terms of our interaction with each other, it's us treating each other like garbage. So I think you're right. It's it's a it's a very sad lesson for Facebook to learn, but one that the rest of us have been like, yeah, I just read Romans one. Right. For sure. It's one of those things where you almost have to laugh because otherwise you'll cry. Mm-hmm. It's really as if Facebook was like, listen we're going to do better at distilling down the essential nature of human interaction, which we believe to be good. They tried it and they're like, Oh, wait a second. Human nature is pretty awful. (laughs) People just want to like just destroy each other online. And what gets attention is sensationalized stuff and angry pose. This is actually, and so what that's, what's hilarious is, and again, I'm not trying to be insensitive to this. I'm just merely pointing out. It's so funny that as we continue to, to quote unquote, get more advanced in our understanding of psychology and interaction, what we keep finding is like, no people in their nature are just pretty darn awful. And that's just the bottom line. So it's almost as if like, again, all Facebook did was reveal the heart. Like we've said before, any, any kind of interaction like this, all it does is reveal the heart. And especially if you get that weird benevolent distance, like you're talking about from somebody else. Oh my gosh, that is like, just like just dropping a bomb and just allowing people to really just get after each other in ways where there's almost zero real accountability for the things they say to one another. And again, all this does is just reveal the heart. It's just like a window right in. It's like, yeah. I mean, at, wh- how else could we translate like what Jesus said, like out of the abundance of your Facebook feed? So the heart speaks like you're seeing directly what's inside people. Right. And it's just like Facebook was like, yo, y'all, it's not good. Just so you know, like we, we actually can see like how everybody's interacting with everybody. And just so everybody knows, it's not awesome. It's and really I think bad. as Christians, we'd be like, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know, we know. <laughs> That's it. That's it. All right. Well, I guess I'll go now. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I'm i denying, I'm not, I can't figure it out. Like I've had all these sort of like esoteric denials that I haven't quite figured out like a pithy way to say it. I think this comes around to the idea that I'm denying the idea that we think as humans that we can like comprehensively understand anything, even created things. So uh, like <laughs> this, fair. this all started, this all started for me. There's a, a YouTube video if you don't follow this channel, I'm, I'm talking to Jesse specifically, but anybody else, if you don't follow this channel, I don't know what's going on in your life. It's called Veritasium. 
and it's like this. this super smart like physics guy, but he does a lot of like math videos too. And he has this video that's called Math Has a Fatal Flaw. And and I I saw that and I was like, that's like the most clickbaity title ever in, in, in the world. But the whole premise of the of the video is like if you really drill down into math far enough, you're gonna find these weird inconsistencies where like we can't reconcile the proof is kind of like the mathematics way to do it. like we can't we can't come to the solution of the equation and the example that he uses and i i texted you this the other day and it just blew right. my mind so we tend to think about the concept of infinity meaning like something that it like extends in duration or extends in some sort of conceptual space without end but we also can conceptualize infinity as a think of like boundaries of, of some sort. And then there's these infinite divisions within those boundaries. Like you can always conceptually divide to, to a length into two smaller lengths. Right. And so there's this proof called Cantor's diagonal argument. <laughs> and what this is, it's kind of hard to explain. So you should go check I, out this. Hold, hold um, on. I can't believe you're about to launch into this on like. A, no, no, on like I am. An I audio, totally am. In an audio format. I'm sorry. I'm just laughing because I was like, I never, you had me at Cantor's. Like, I never expected you would just drop that. I think and, I can do it. I think okay, I can this explain this in a way that this is, is articulate and makes sense. So here we go. Here we go. So we understand, right, there's two different, well, there's more than one, more than two different kinds of numbers. But for the sake of this discussion, there's two kinds of numbers we're going to consider. There's what's called natural numbers, which are our whole numbers, think counting numbers, starting at zero or starting at one because it's natural integers, going on positively into infinity, right? So one, two, three, four, dot, dot, dot until infinity. And then there's, there's, um, what are they rational numbers, right? Between zero and like rational numbers are like decimals. Like they, they, they're, they're there. And right. right. So if you think about the number one, zero and one, there's an infinite number of possible decimals between there, right? You can do 0.1, you can 0.11, 0.1111, 0.1111. Like you can always add another one to the end of that or, or another number of any kind to the end of that decimal to make that that smaller, to make that I, fraction irrational. more precise. That'd be an irrational right? number. Irrational, right? So when we think about that, we think, okay, well, if there's an infinite number of natural numbers and there's mm-hmm. an infinite number of uh, or infinite quantity, I'm going to say quantity dif- instead. There's an infinite quantity of natural numbers, and there's an infinite quantity of irrational numbers between zero and one. Well, what what happens is we think those are the same concepts, like infinity right. is infinity. Well, if you take, uh, if you take write one, two, three, four, five down into infinity, and imagine you could write an infinite number of numbers on one column, and then you pair up a rational no- or an irrational number between zero and one on another column and match those up. As long as there's a one-to-one correlation, then those infinities in quotation marks would be the same. It'd be the same size infinity. Right. But what this diagonal proof does is basically if you've got all these integer or these all these irrational numbers and you go diagonal so that you change the first the first decimal that the uh, the tens decimal point one if you just add one so it's point two and then you you make another decimal with the next one and you just keep going diagonally down. Well, what you do is you now have a number that is still within zero and one, but it's not right. the same as any other totally number different. by definition on that infinite list. So basically what you end up with is the counting numbers are infinity 
and the uh, irrational numbers are infinity plus one or plus plus infinity, infinity plus infinity or infinity times two or whatever, however you want to articulate that. But what it demonstrates is that the two infinities are not the same thing. So like right there, everybody in the math world's like, and it like was this huge, it was this huge like upset in the math world because right. all of a sudden this like bedrock foundational assumption that infinity is infinity full stop was proven not to be true. And so obviously like we're talking about really heady concepts, but mathematics, at least at, at the point before this happened, mathematics was understood as like this crystalline structure that was like understandable and followed ordinary laws and was predictable. And now all of a sudden we've got this, this guy who's proved no, like you can have two infinities and one of them can be bigger, which is a, is like an incoherent statement. And so now we have to talk about countable infinity and not countable <laughs> infinity. Yes. Right. So it's, I'm yes. just denying this idea that we think that we can get sophisticated enough in our scientific understanding. And like, it's funny that your Facebook thing, boils down to a math equation, right? right. It's, it's a really right. complicated math equation trying to direct human beings to, and no matter what they try to do, like we outsmart to the, the math equation in our own depravity. Like this is kind of the same thing. Like no matter how, how uh, articulate we get, how, how far down into these mathematical principles we draw ourselves, we end up finding that, like this guy says, there's a hole in the bottom of math and it, everything just drops out the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And unless we kind of ignore some of those things, a lot of our mathematical principles, they just don't work. Like if you don't, that's why you hear about like Euclidean geometry versus right. other kinds of geometry. Like if you try to do Euclidean geometry and then all of a sudden you introduce this non-Euclidean shape or non-Euclidean proof, all of a sudden, like the math stops working and, and we can't do math anymore. So it's, it's almost kind of like physics, like there's Newtonian physics and there's Einsteinian physics and like never the two shall meet because if you do like all of a sudden physics doesn't work anymore or quantum and math, like there's all these different things where we think about science, we think about math as though it's this stable, static, understandable, predictable matrix of thought. And in reality, like it's just not. And it's not because it's not. It's because we as these finite creatures can't even understand right. the finite creation that God has created because it's that complex. It's that detailed that it's just beyond our capabilities. So no matter how close we get to understanding it, we are, are infinitely far from understanding <laughs> it in a certain sense. So I'm just denying this idea like... When we think about what it means to be human, we think about uh, the fact that like we're time bound, we're constrained, all of these things that make it so like we have to recognize our limitations or right we're going to fly off into insanity more or less. That's that's my denial is thinking, Man. basically thinking we're God by thinking we can comprehend the intricacies of God's creation. That's, that's great. a better you, way to say you, it than you, but whatever you used I a said mathematical, at the beginning. You used a mathematical proof to bring to bear into that denial, which was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. It's Cantor's diagonal proof. Yeah. Super so. beautiful. And you're absolutely right about that. It strikes me as kind of this denial where we're saying, we think that if we can get smart enough about certain things, we'll understand all of that thing because we think it's finite, but even math itself is infinite. And we recognize that because it breaks at some point and it really can't appropriately quantify everything. Everything is like we're taking in data and we're trying to understand things. I often think in just my course of like my professional life, there are times I'm just sitting and working on something I get excited about. And then I think, you know what? Only God knows if this is right. And that's not yeah. a matter of saying like, we just, I don't know if I've done it right. It's a matter of saying there are things we cannot appropriately quantify, no matter how specific we get, no matter how strong the theory, no matter how much research, there are things that we just can't possibly appropriately and discernibly 
express. And this yeah. is one of those things like, and I, I love that math can, it's almost like math is in some ways. And again, you know how much I love math, like imploding on itself. It shows that math itself, which seems like a high and lofty concept. In other words, I think some people think of math as like a transcendent right. thing. And like they here do. we're seeing like, it's not transcendent enough. Actually, it's actually yeah. underneath the feet of Christ because only he can probably understand this. And when we get to heaven and we get to experience some of this grand knowledge, what we'll find is that there are no contradictions here. It's just that our system was so puny, you know, like it was too yeah. tiny for, for God. And that there is a way in which he brings all these things together in consummate harmony. But your simple little math, uh, as sophisticated as it seems, is not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. Yeah. And, and, you know, this this channel is interesting because I don't think this guy's a Christian but it's kind of like you're not far from the kingdom because he's constantly yeah. reflecting on the fact that like, particularly math, because that's his wheelhouse, but he's constantly reflecting on the fact that math seems to be the answer to all things, but also it it fails us. So like there's this thing where like math kind of implodes in on itself, but then he also has one that's called the simplest math problem no one can solve. And there's this, there's this, I don't remember what it's called. It's called a conjecture. I don't remember the name of it, but it's this formula three X plus one. And uh -huh. if you run this like algorithm on it, where if you do three X plus one, right. if that's an even number, right. then you divide it in half and you apply three X plus one. And every number so far that they've applied this to, it, it spikes up at a certain point and then it comes down and it locks into this, I think it's eight, four, one or it, four, two, one, some sort of cycle where then it just, it just cycles. It never resolves down to zero and it never goes back up again. And every number that you put in for X eventually does that. And what he was reflecting on is like, there might be some point out there, there might be some number on, on the natural number scale in, you know, 27 giga Googleplex billion Xfinity 93. Yes, right. Like right. there might be some number out there infinitely high or in our minds, like so far into, into the number line that we're never going to get there where it does actually either never come back down or it, or it resolves down to zero somehow. It might be out there. We are probably never going to get there. And so it's funny because he talks about how like some mathematicians get obsessed with this equation, trying to figure it out and it ruins their career because this is all that they can do and it's all they can focus on. And they never come to any sort of meaningful conclusion. So much so that a lot of times in advanced math programs, like like graduate level, PhD level math programs, at some point, one of the professors says, look, I know you're going to get sucked into 3x <laughs> plus one and you think you're going to be the person that's going to solve it. Right. If you want to try, that's fine. But make sure you're working on something else. Make a name for yourself first. And like, so on one hand, there's these problems where like, if you apply the static laws of mathematics to them, it collapses into incoherence, which it shouldn't do with mathematics, or it's so transcendent that exactly. we're never going to actually be able to solve it. And all that points to on both ends of this equation is that this system we've come up with can't be perfect. Otherwise, there wouldn't be these bottomless holes that don't like that drop out. But also at the same time, we've come up, we've come up with a mathematical system that actually is so far transcendent beyond us that even we can't figure it out. So it's just it's just again it's it's more Romans one stuff, right? It's us thinking that we're the masters of the universe. No no he man pun intended. We're we're the rulers of the universe. We're God, and and, and we can't even figure out math. Like something as straightforward and static <laughs> as math, we we can't even figure out a system that we basically. In instructor invented on our own anyways. I agree. We just can't conceive of it. One last quick example. This is from my professional work. And that is, 
maybe people know this already, but when we think of, so we tend to think of like, so obviously rational numbers are numbers that cannot be represented in the form of a ratio. So like, right. like P over Q. Um, so if you have like the square root of five or 11 or 21, it's going to be a rational number. You get that like repeating crazy decimal stuff. And that's your point. You can have like, if you think about how many possible combinations you can have between zero and one of any number that's less than one right. greater than zero, but a decimal of infinite length, it you make your mind implode. But one of the, here's a place where you might think there would be like complete understanding and full kind of just confidence in this would be in finance. And right. we speak of discrete and we think of continuous stuff. So um, numbers that are discrete have it take on the form at least of a, a known quantable quantity, countable quantity. So prices tend to be discrete. So for instance, they're in ticks of a penny generally, or whatever your local currency is of 0.01. So, you know, like a share of stock might be 2561. That's discrete numbers. But we speak of return as continuous numbers because they have a million decimals. There's no you know, limit to like when you take one number divided by the other and look at return. So generally in the market, returns get quoted as continuous returns, which would be, if you want to get fancy real quick, it's the natural logarithm of the beginning price over the ending price. Here's why this is so strange. Nobody really knows what that means. Like, what does it mean to have a continuous return? Like even the markets aren't open continually. You can't actually trade something all the time, every time, anytime you want to. So we recognize that like time is discrete, but that that's not enough for us here because we want to reflect the fact that things should move through time and should be in a constant state of growth or growth or flux. So we use a continuous operator, which really doesn't make sense because we're using against a discrete input. So this is like, you think surely when it comes to money, we should feel the most confident about the math we're doing behind it. Yeah. Philosophically, people don't even understand that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let, let me just like throw my own spin on that. Like, what that means, if I understand it right, I have some investments. They're very moderate investments. But at some point, actually at all points in time, I have an investment that is so minutely fine, it's less than a penny. Like like the actual value of my investments, I have portions of pennies in my investments that like obviously I can never I can never claim, I can never have someone pay me less than a penny. I can never pay someone more than a penny, but I own I own value in some company or in some commodity or whatever it's invested in that actually equals less than a penny. So sure. like I'm doing transactions or someone's doing transactions on my behalf with irrational numbers that can't be comprehended, yet they're still doing it. Or I suppose computers somewhere are probably doing it. But that like that's what that says to me is like we are operating on these mathematical principles that actually like can't even exist in the real world, the way that we conceptualize yeah. things. Yeah. Or like they point to something that's like pre-temporal or not temporal. So in this right. case, like with continuous compounding, for instance, what you're basically saying is that time is eternal. That right. doesn't actually move forward at discrete increments, but that it's more compressed than that. And it's also more lengthened than that. That's right. the thing that's crazy. It's like even impounded in something simple as like, how much interest did I earn? Yeah. In some places in the market, what you're going to find is that's done continually, even though in reality, the underlying behavior of that investment is not continuous, but we yeah. impose continuity on it because we recognize that there's like almost like an eternal nature to things. And so I'm with you. Like it just, this is going to just be turned into a math cast if we don't move away from this too fast. Yeah. Well, I, my math ability is totally drained out. So <laughs> it fell great, into though. that bottomless hole of the diagonal proof. So no, that, that was really great. People gone. should check, people should check that out. Also another good one I think we've recommended before is number file. If you look at that, these are just yeah. like fun things that make you think, and they just bring in numbers to help you 
do that thinking process. So it's not yeah. for math nerds per se, but that's, that's a super good one. So my affirmation is actually, I'm just going to like take kind of a right. It's not even a hard, right. I'm just going to exit off this highway slightly, but stay in this theme. And that is, I'm just coming back to something I've uh, affirmed with before, but it's that time of year. I am ordering up my old farmer's almanac for 2022 because I just love this thing. Oh and I'm just affirming with it again and saying, Hey, listen, loved ones. Now's the time to get the 2022 version it actually runs from November of each year to October of the, the end of the following year. Um, but this again, kind of what you're talking about. One of the reasons I really love this is not for the weird astrological stuff that's in it, although that is really funny to read because there's like some really whacked out stuff. But for the um, astronomical stuff that's in here, we're talking about movements of celestial bodies and meteor showers. Like there's a wonderful calendar that has like all this stuff what's going on. It does help you to appreciate how complex and beautiful our world is. And yet at the same time, how magnificently ordered it is. The fact that somebody can produce this book every year, not only is the weather pretty close to being very accurate, but also the movements of all these celestial bodies are explicitly diagrammed and can be put in a calendar and you can wake up that day and read about what's going to happen and go outside and observe it is glorious. So I think everybody's just going to copy this because it's a really super amazing little book, fun little resource to read through, and it'll keep you interested in God's creation, especially in the sky all year long. I feel like maybe it's witchcraft. <laughs> I mean, I just with how eerily accurate it is, especially the weather, I feel like it's probably witchcraft. It's great. The regional weather. I mean, there it's as it's grown, I think it's I don't, this thing's been around for like over 200 years, right? Something yeah. like that. So obviously they've gotten better and better at using computers to do some of this forecasting. But uh, I wish I was like a gardener because like there's all kinds of great tips in here about like when you start like to help you with gardening and cycling, stuff like that. But I really do like it for the weather stuff. It's yeah. the weather stuff is great. And I don't know. I do like the sunrise and sunset time stuff. I'm a nerd like that, I guess. But I, this kind of comes like across maybe just, your phone can do all of that, right? I know, but there's, there's something joyous <laughs> about seeing the chart in front of you and doing yeah. like, uh, you like all the delineation of like the angle of the sun. And I, I don't know. It's really, I would encourage people to like, you can buy a Kindle for like six bucks. Check it out. Just cause I yeah. never, I never would have thought I was a dude that would be into this. Like I'm not, I know some people are like the weather's almost their hobby. You can ask a person like, does everybody know a person who they can ask the weather and that person would like you go to them because like, they're going to tell you, they're going to be able to tell you the highs and lows for the next three days, like what the pressure is doing, like where storms are moving. Like we all have that person, right? I'm not that person. I just love this book as like a resource to help me uh, appreciate God's creation all the more. Yeah. I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm the guy that walks outside when it's raining and like pouring on my head and someone's like, is it raining outside? I'm like, I'm not sure. Like (laughs) dripping wet. I'm like, I don't know. It feels like maybe there's a little, maybe, I don't know. Feels like it might. Yeah. Feels like it might. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep my affirmation short because it actually, uh, unbeknownst to me, because I didn't know what the subject of our podcast today was until about 30 seconds before we hit record. Uh, actually ties into our podcast episode pretty well. So oh, yeah. I'm affirming an article that was published on the Haida blog, but it was not published by our Scott Clark or our friend Reginald, as we like to call him. <laughs> um, it was published by Harrison Perkins, who is, um, he's kind of an adjunct um, lecturer at Westminster. He lives in, in England, but he, he does a lot of more like historical theology kind of work. So he ends up getting his stuff published on, on Scott's blog once in a while. He's got a couple books out. And this is a book... You know, we've talked a number of times about about John Piper's theology, and one of the things that I've always sort of lamented is 
There are a number of places in John Piper's theology where you can look at it and it looks very, very orthodox. Even within like the same book, it looks very, very good, very, very on point as far as justification uh, and this future justification concept. And then there's other places where you're like, what are you doing, John? Like, what is going on here? And so um, Harrison Perkins put out a review slash analysis on Scott's uh, blog, on the Heidel blog. That is a, a review and analysis of Future Grace, specifically the 2012 edition, uh, which is John Piper's kind of like initial book about it, basically like his soteriology book. And what I found so helpful about this is, first of all, it's someone who's, who's really read and studied and analyzed the work, like in depth. But what I found so helpful about that, this is that uh, Harrison is trying to be as charitable as possible. And more or less the conclusion he's come to is that John Piper ends up with this sort of like redefinition of faith, which the more that I hear about what's going on with some of these justification controversies, this Lordship Salvation, Federal Vision, the redefinition of faith is really central to all of them. So I'm not going to go into too many details. It'll probably, we'll probably talk about it a little bit as we get through this episode, but he identifies that John Piper re uh, redefines faith as satisfaction with God. So being content in the fact that Christ has saved us, that's how he redefines faith. And so he shows that although Piper is tethered to certain historical definitions of faith and justification, and that's good because he's redefined faith and his understanding of faith in this sort of novel, unique way, or maybe not entirely unique, but this sort of novel way, it leads him to all these like inconsistencies that cause us to look at and go, wait a second, like you can become more or less satisfied. So if faith, if justification is dependent on faith, then can you become less justified? And so he, John explicitly denies that, but his theology implicitly affirms it in how he defines what faith is. So uh, it's a really helpful uh, episode, really helpful article. It's long. Uh, It'll probably take you about a half an hour, 45 minutes to read. So um, we've recommended in the past, I have it on pocket. I put it on pocket and then pocket can, can translate that to audio for me. So I listened to it while I was driving. I'm probably going to go back again and read it, read it, because you always miss things when you're listening in audio, but it's a good way to sort of get get it into your ear holes. Um, but it's really, really worth checking out. So if you go to the heidelblog.net and just look up, uh, it's called John Piper, Future Grace, The Purifying Power of Promises, Revised Edition, New York, Multnomah, 2012, A Thorough Review. Like if you just look that up, just just look that up. If you just look up John Piper and Harrison Perkins, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, but it is a super, super helpful uh, introduction to the issue. I'm going to try to get Harrison on the podcast um, because this is something I've wanted to talk through for a long time. It is the challenge is that there are lots and lots of statements in John Piper that uh, seem totally, completely orthodox, where it seems like he really gets it. And it it seems like Scott is making a big deal out of nothing. And then there's the other ones where it seems like Scott is totally right on. And right. so the question is, do we interpret the ones where it seems like Scott's crazy in light of the ones where it seems like Scott's not crazy, or do we go the other direction? And this helps to sort of say, like, we don't really need to do either. We need to understand that, like, John Piper, as, an, as a fallible writer, has some inconsistencies that explains why there's this dual issue. But he he does kind of come to the conclusion like this is a problem and we need to address it and we need to be realistic about it. So check out the review. Uh, it's super thorough. It's super good. And it's very charitable, which I think is important. Um, I love Scott, but he can sometimes have a little bit of a harder edge. This This review has a much softer take and a much more charitable, not to say Scott's not charitable, but has a much more charitable 
a benefit of the doubt kind of position. Scott's done so much work on this that I feel like he's probably expended the benefit of the doubt that he may have had for Piper, which is is fine. Like you get to that point, but this is much more uh, gentle, I think. So it's a lot less hard to read, especially if you're a fan of John Piper. So check it out. I think it's really good. And that's a great segue, of course, like the perfect segue into this conversation about faith, which this will be, incidentally, people will appreciate, this will be the first time that we will not have a definitive episode on something, because really faith is this conversation that we continue to come back to. We've talked about it before, and we'll talk about it again. But it seemed about time, given the light of everything that's going on, and also this idea that faith, of course, is central to Christianity. The New Testament is repeatedly calling people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a definite body of content to be believed, which is part and parcel of true religious activity. And of course, at the time of the Reformation, which most of us probably listening to this, we come from that kind of tradition, either directly or derivatively. And there was a debate about the nature of saving faith. So everywhere we see the Bible calling us to faith and everywhere we actually see people wrestling with, well, what really is faith? And so that's where I thought, let's have a little bit of a conversation about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a great conversation to have because it is such as it's such a foundational topic. It's so important to understand. And as I said, so many of the kind of distinctly reformed uh, soteriological crises, you might want to call them, whether it's New Paul, uh, which because of N.T. Wright's sort of reformed adjacent theology, uh, takes a particularly reformed stance on it. It's very rooted in covenant theology, even though it's right. his own kind of covenant theology. What, you know, So there's new perspective, federal vision, which is obviously a, a very... Uh, reformed controversy because it started in the reformed church or shepherd, you know, the, the shepherd controversy or lordship salvation with MacArthur or this issue with John Piper and sort of future justification. All of these, as you look at them, when you dig down to them, there's two things they screw up, right? There's, they're either collapsing the gospel into they're they're making the gospel into law or they're making the law into gospel or somehow sometimes they do both. Right. And they have these weird redefinitions of faith, Right, so new perspective and federal vision tend to redefine faith as faithfulness. John Piper tends to redefine faith as satisfaction. MacArthur redefined faith as repentance and obedience. So all of these things, if we screw up what it means, what faith is, if we screw up the definition of faith, we really go sideways because we we affirm that salvation or justification is through faith alone. I right. think we're on good grounds to say sanctification is through faith alone, right? right. Glorification as the, as the terminus of, of sanctification is through faith alone. All of these things are through faith alone. The issue is uh, if we screw up what faith is, then we've, we've still screwed up what it means to have something by faith alone. Because if you redefine and say salvation or justification is by repentance alone, well, you're really far off base, even though you may not recognize it. So I think this is a really worthwhile conversation, even though it's kind of a almost like a cost of entry kind of conversation. Exactly. I think what we're learning is that that cost of entry is something that hopefully this doesn't sound too smug. Maybe it's supposed to sound a little smug. That cost of entry is not something that a lot of people can pay, to be honest. So right. I think we're going to start doing more of these kind of primer episodes, but understanding what faith is, is so vital to reformational theology uh, that it really you can't, you can't get basic enough about it. You can't get down to the bottom of it enough to feel like, yeah, we can move on. This is a thing we have to continually keep coming back to. Yeah, I think it 
we just thought that maybe everybody was on the same page. And then we discovered, oh my gosh, we've got these differences between like faith and yielding righteousness. And everybody is kind of combining these things in weird ways. So like, let me start us off this way. Like, this is perfect because you brought up math earlier. So this is the way that I honestly think about it. I think about it in terms of equations, not because I'm reducing faith to some kind of systematic formula, but more that this is, I think, a representation just in a formulaic way. So for like the Roman Catholic Church, it's always been faith plus works equals justification. For antinomians, this is kind of funny to me, it would be like faith minus works <laughs> equals yeah. justification, right? Like the the the, the signage on uh, works is actually negative. But for Protestant reformers, like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, um, those guys, the OGs, and I think for us, what we're saying is like faith equals justification plus works. So we've got these similar elements, but we've right. we've swapped them on the equation so as to better reflect what the scripture actually teaches. And this is where I think we're, we're I think we're probably after saving faith. But this is where I think people often fall down because what we need here is something that's helpful to us. Now, like if we just set aside for just a second the confessions and the, the, all the creedal language, because I think, honestly, that's where we ought to go. But let's say that we set this aside for a second. We just say, when somebody asks us, what is faith? What kind of answer do we give? Do we yeah. have a fully orbed understanding, but one that's fully orbed enough that we can talk about it practically? Because faith is a thing of immense practical significance, especially if we're going to attach it to justification and salvation. So then we really ought to be able to give like the elevator pitch or the short description. And I think where we often fall down is we don't know what the constituent elements of saving faith are. So we think of faith mainly as like in a fiduciary way, like fiduciary, right? that somebody's been vouchsafed with something that is important to perform and we're trusting them to undertake that. And so we think of faith principally in this matter of trust and reliance. You know, I, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But there's also, we have to think about what is the other, t- what I would say the other two broad elements when I'm explaining it is there's a content of faith. You know, we have to believe the right things and there's a conviction of the content of the faith that is true. And then there is this trusting piece. So all these three have to come together. And I think the reformed were really concerned about getting that right, but articulating it like very expressly so that the person who's sitting in the pew in the Lord's day is walking out with a firm sense of what faith is who provides that faith and what it does in the life of the Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I get that question, what is faith, right? The Bible doesn't give a lot of straight up definitions. Uh, this is actually an exception to that general rule, right? We, we often think there can be a danger in treating the Bible as though it was like a textbook or like a reference book. But there are these sort of like moments where the Bible acts that way. So uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? And so what we what we see with faith, and this is something that I think only the Reformed world, I might be taking us a little bit afield, but only the Reformed position, and maybe the Lutheran position, but maybe not to the same extent, only those who truly believe and understand that faith is genuinely a gift that comes from God, that man has no part in mustering up faith in some sense, or, uh, and this is why I say the Lutherans only to a certain extent, 
if we think that faith is something we create or something that we bring to the table, something that we are the cause and origin of, or something that we can prevent or prohibit, you know, like, like that's why I kind of exclude the Lutherans is because the Lutherans believe like, yeah, God can give you faith, but you can resist that grace and then right. therefore suppress that faith or destroy that faith. Only traditions that really see faith as coming from God can actually affirm that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things seen. Because if faith is merely something we produce, then it can't be the assurance of something hoped for because we could produce right. that. Right. But what but I think is really interesting when you look at the language here, right? Uh, in Greek, the assurance, the faith is the assurance, it's hypostasis, Right, which anyone right. who's listened to our Trinity series understands, hypostasis is like, like the substance of a thing in concrete form is what a hypostasis is like, an an essence, actually concretized, something that's real in reality. So faith is no longer like this ethereal thing, which is what we kind of think of it as. Faith is actually the most concrete existence of our hope, which is a little bit strange to think about. But I don't know anybody who doesn't hope that uh, they're going to they're going to have a pleasant life and a pleasant existence, right? There's very few people that genuinely think, I really want to be miserable all the time. Well, faith for the Christian is the actuality, it's the evidence, it's the assurance, it's the embodiment of our future hope that in Christ all things will be made right. So I think, I think that like, yes, there's this classic definition of faith and we will and should talk about that. But before we even talk about that, we need to realize that faith as a gift from God is actually proof of God's goodness and his promise. Yes. So the fact it's this weird sort of circularity that we, we, we have faith in the promise, but because we have faith in the promise, we actually can have uh, confidence that the promise is true. Right, because God has given us the faith. And since God is good, God would not give us a trust in something that would not ultimately come to fruition. Does it make sense? Like yeah, the faith is actually our 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 deposit. It's like the I mean, the Holy Spirit is the deposit of God's promise, but our faith in God is actually a gift which proves that the gift is coming. Yes. It proves that the promise will be actualized. And so that's that's the biblical definition of faith. It's like God has given us this. And here, here's where, it, this is where the the Reformed, and again, to, the, to a lesser degree, I don't think they, they phrase it the same way, but the Westminster Confession, faith is resting and receiving uh, that which rests on and receives the promises of Christ. Well, verse 11.2 of Hebrews, for it is by faith that the people of old received their commendation. Right. Right. So faith is not some, uh, faith is not the grounds of our justification. God doesn't look at us and go, oh man, man, Tony has a lot of faith. Therefore, I will justify Tony. Right. It's not as though God is rewarding my faith or my faith merits justification. That's the trap that the Arminians fell into. Right. So the Reformed and the Lutherans to a lesser degree, they looked at this and said, no, no, faith is a is a instrument which receives the promises of God, but is not something that grounds or or bases our justification. It's not something that merits our justification. It's simply the receptacle or the receiver of that yes. justification as it rests in Christ and trusts Christ for salvation. And that's really what we get at when we talk about um we talk about verse, you know, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, especially in verse 3 as well. That's really where we're getting it from, is that Christ 
Christ gives us this faith. It's created in us by the Holy Spirit. And because we've because the the Father has determined that he will give us this faith, which then rests and receives the promise, it then secures and evidences the fact that the promise is true. And that that's something I think a lot of people they just don't get. They think of faith in its instrumental cause, that's important, but this element of it is also something that I don't think we think about a lot. I totally agree. I mean, it's, it strikes me that in a really rudimentary way, we're saying faith is like a channel or a conduit. It's receiving this goodness, but it's right. necessary. It is a necessary part. And this right. then leads us to this question, I think, where people get tripped up of, well, I'm with you guys. I want to have that kind of faith. So what do I need to do? How right. does one acquire this kind of faith? So if we go to, I mean, I love, of course, like Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus on this, right? Like Ephesians one and two is like a fireball. Like, it just, I'm going to try to read this and not go through a wall when I'm done. But, <laughs> you know, it, it has this beautiful zenith. It reaches this high point really at the end of um, Ephesians 2, where, you know, Paul is talking about the massive importance of grace through faith. So I want to piggyback off something you said by just, um, I guess, letting uh, Paul say it best. So he says, of course, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's exactly what you summarized. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I think the way that most of the Reformed and I think a careful exegesis will read this passage is we're not just talking about, in other words, the gift that Paul's referring to here is not just this saving nature, not just this activity that has been wrought on your behalf, which is a gracious act, but so also is the faith which takes hold of that saving work. This too also is a gift. And just in case anybody think that I am like exaggerating that and that what Paul is actually trying to do there is bifurcate and say, no, 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 no. Everything up to this point, I don't know why we'd read it this way, because if you read all of Ephesians 2, what you're going to find is that God is always a subject of every active verb there. He is always doing the thing like that. You, can, I think it's really hard to disagree in that it's anything but monergistic here. So if you really want to blow this like case out and be a devil's advocate, you try to make this argument that up to this point, that's what Paul's doing. When he gets to faith, he's talking about what we ought to add to the equation, so to speak, so as to receive and rest in Christ appropriately. The faith is something that we have to manufacture. Just in case anybody thinks that I'm going too far with saying that's not what I think Paul is saying. Here is what chapter 14 of the London Baptist Confession says in section one, the grace of faith, by the way, like, four amazing words, right? Can we, can we just stop there? Yeah. Like they're automatically acknowledging that faith is a grace. Where does grace come from? That comes from God himself. So even that we could just stop there and end the episode. That's an amazing thing to say. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's supper prayer and other means appointed to God, it is increased and strengthened. So I think it's very clear there what Paul is saying is that this faith, this conduit, this channel itself is also a gift that comes from God. And in the words of the divines here, it is the work of the spirit of Christ in our hearts. So we, we always are going to come back, I think, when we're talking about faith 
to we will find ourselves a burnt out, discouraged, disgruntled, and upset if we think that somehow I need to achieve a certain level of faith which I myself build, or I have all the biblical data and I so badly want to receive Christ, but I just can't because I somehow can't bring myself to trust enough in what's being said right. there. We ought to ask for faith. We ought to receive faith itself as a gift from God. And I think God does at various points in our Christian walk, challenge that faith purposefully by making it grow in the classroom of adversity and struggle. But even there, his goal is not to like make us stronger by saying like, you have puny faith muscles and I just need you to lift more hard things and then your faith will be bigger. Even there, he's actually the one providing the nuisance. He's the one growing the muscle. He does it all for his glory and for our good, but he is always the one in every way doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think, um, I think that's important for us to keep in mind because as I said, these, these different, um, these different definitions of faith, these different I want to say like corruptions of the reformational understanding of faith. They almost all still acknowledge that faith is a gift from God, but the way that God gives us that gift is different among the different groups. Right. Right. So in most of these, in most of these, even if they acknowledge that like initial faith is a gift from God, there's still this element that like, we have to sort of like muster it up. We have to like, we have to like foster it and like, grow it like and if we don't do that then then we could let it die right and so like john piper faith is satisfaction well if we don't if we don't go to our bible daily if we don't do our daily devotions and and like express our faith and like foster and cultivate our faith then it could die out right or federal vision if if we don't continue in good works then our faithfulness will be damaged and so eventually like we we won't be able to be said to have been faithful or new new paul is kind of the same way and that's that's what I think as reformed or reformational Christians, you know, kind of the magisterial reformation, whether it's Wingley or Luther or Calvin, whoever it might be, that's really the the insight of it is that faith, faith from start to finish is a gift of God, right? It's not just that God gives us some sort of like initial, like initial, uh, like, down payment of faith yeah, like or some deposit. sort of like initial infusion of faith or some sort of like initial initial quantity of faith like some seed money and then we have to do something with that that's <laughs> yes, not right. like that's not what that's not what the bible's teaching like faith this trust in god this knowledge of god's works this assent to the reality of god's works to kind of use the three classical elements of faith all of those things come from god right, right. god god enlightens our minds to the knowledge of the truth right? That's, that's part of our effectual calling. So the fact that we actually have the information in front of us and that we have appropriated that information, that's a gift of God, even though he's done it through means. If you go back to our, uh, our Providence series, where we talked about God sometimes works through means and sometimes he works immediately, even though he does that through means through the preaching of the word, that's still a gift from God. Right. So the the uh, the notitia, the the knowledge of the the facts of the gospel. There you go. That still comes from God, even though it comes through means. It's God giving it to us through means the ascent to the truth of that. Well, I mean, I don't know whether that's through whether that's means, whether that's God exercising means or whether it's some sort of direct thing. But he still enlightens our minds in the knowledge of the truth. So he gives us that data, the data that's in front of us. He causes us to believe that that data is true. And then this last part is where I I think he most 
closely immediately works. Not immediately because it's still through the preaching of the word. But the fact that we believe and trust that that reality that we've assented to, that those facts that we've assented to are for our benefit, right? We could believe there's people out there that could believe and I've run into these people and it's always a little confusing to me. They believe that that Christ is real, that Christ is God. They believe he died on the cross for the salvation of the elect, but they don't believe themselves to be the elect. So they don't think that that's for them. Like that's, that's a significant, important part of this whole faith process. This whole faith formula is belief that those facts are also true for you and that they're for your benefit, right? If I believe Christ died on the cross and he died on the cross for someone else, but I don't believe he died for me. I don't believe that that's for me, that he died for my benefit, then I don't actually have faith. I might believe that that's true, but I don't have a trust that that's true for me and that it has saving import for my life. And so we have to understand if at any part through that, those kind of those three portions, if any of that becomes something we do or we muster up, then we've lost, we've lost the plot entirely. And we've, we've ended up in this sort of like position where either we, it, it ends up being law, it's works righteousness, where either I, I've done enough to build faith in myself or I haven't. And if I haven't done enough, then God's not going to forgive me because I haven't gotten there. Well, even the smallest amount of trust given to us by God is enough for us to fall on Jesus right Christ on. for our salvation. And there's this, there's this analogy. It, it works really well for people who live in areas where uh, lakes freeze over. So if you live somewhere in the South where your lakes don't freeze over, this may not make as much sense to you. But my, my pastor used to tell this story. Who knows if it's true? Sometimes pastors just tell stories because they heard it and it sounds better if it's, if it was them on the frozen lake. I don't know why they do that, but sometimes they do. But the story goes like this. Two people are out cross country skiing or snowshoeing or whatever it might be. And they're running late. And in order to get home, they have to cross a frozen lake. And one person has like a crippling fear of crossing a frozen lake. And so he says, well, how thick is the ice? Well, the reality of it is no matter how much he's afraid, if that ice is super, super thick, you know, we're talking like 12 inches of ice, an elephant could walk across it. Like people drive their trucks across this ice. It doesn't matter how much he trusts it. He's not falling through. But unless he actually steps out onto the ice and across it, it's demonstrating he hasn't trusted it. On the same on the same way, if that ice is super thin, it doesn't matter how much you trust it. If you step out on that ice, you're going through. And that's the point. Is this the quantity or the strength of our faith is not really what's at issue. It's the strength of the one in whom we have faith. The object, but you have yeah. to lay claim to that through right. faith in order for it to be effectual to you. So I, I think we have to understand it as a gift from God. We have to understand that it's not the strength of the faith that God gives us, but any measure of faith that God does give us is sufficient to lay claim to Christ in a salvific way. And I think that's something we often miss too. That's the key. I'm glad you said that. Calvin is particularly good on that point. He was always encouraging those, especially his own congregation to realize that fact that don't get it twisted. It's not the size of this faith. It's the object of the faith. Right. And I think there's probably a good Marvel of cinematic universe comparison in there somewhere in terms of like power and all it takes is being connected. It's not again, the connection itself, but just being connected to it. There's gotta be right. This seems more like your territory, but probably, <laughs> yeah. 
but like that's but here's the thing the reason why my mind goes there even though i know nothing about the marvel cinematic universe is because this seems so otherworldly like it seems so foreign to us that we should not have to do anything that it's not about something that we've set aside it's not about work or effort that we've mustered or put pulled together and we just really struggle with that and so when we get to hebrews or ephesians and we're talking about god doing a work in us that we are a new creation you know for example when paul is saying that we are the work of god he's actually not referring to ordinary creation if we as if like any creation that god has done is ordinary but what he means relatively speaking is that we're declared to be these new creatures because not by our own power but by the spirit of christ we have been formed to righteousness through faith and that the faith has been formed in us by the spirit of christ and this is what's just become overwhelmingly clear in my own life as i've grown as a christian and that is like Christianity, true Christianity, true theology, everything belongs to God and has been vouchsafed to Jesus Christ and to be applied by the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is if we think that there's any part of being a Christian that we have contributed to or that we maintain or hold ourselves in, we are sorely mistaken. And loved ones, we don't want it to be that way. We don't want to have any responsibility for that because the minute that we take it on, if there were such a world, a counterfactual reality in which Christians somehow had something to do either in the genesis or in the maintenance of their own creation, we would mess it up. We would fall apart. We would forfeit it. We would fall under judgment of it. And so the bottom line is God has been merciful in his kindness, in love, he predestines, in love, he gives faith because he's the one who holds it safe. It's like having your most treasured possession in some kind of container that is vulnerable or could be, could be attacked. And when Jesus holds everything of your identity and who you are, it is 100% safe from everything that's temporal and everything that's spiritual. And so this is actually what we want. We want the kind of faith that God gives, that God maintains, that God guards. And it's exactly the kind of faith that Paul is writing about. Yeah. Maybe just to kind of uh, sort of close this out, I want to just... I'm going to go to the Westminster because that's just who I am and how dare it works. you, but it's the same section that Jesse was referencing from the, um, the London Baptist, uh, confession, the, the, uh, we'll call that like the, the rough draft copy version <laughs> or something like that. Listen, but, we're, con- uh, we're each of us are contractually obligated to use. I do this in part because we're now at this point in the podcast, you're contractually obligated to use the Westminster. I must use the Lent. People expect this. We would it's we would true. violate our contractual obligation. I feel like I'm also contractually obligated to make fun of the <laughs> cheap copy version of the Westminster Confession. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, all of that said, the the they're virtually identical you. as far as I know in this case. So I'm going to synthesize a little bit chapter 14, uh, which is of saving faith, to sort of bring forward like the assurance that this has for the Christian. Right. So uh, section one, the grace of faith, which Jesse already reflected on, is like an amazing statement in itself. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, right? So the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ in their hearts, right? And then jump down to verse three or to section three. This faith is different in degrees, right? Like we're talking about that this faith is different in degrees, some stronger, some, some less strong, weak or strong may often be in many ways assailed and weakened. And here's, here's the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ here, but gets the victory. 
Amen. So faith is that which gets the victory. Amen. Faith is the instrument through which we receive Christ, who is the victorious Savior of all of the elect throughout all the ages. And so faith, faith cannot be something that we muster up ourselves, because if it were, it would just be the same trash that we always muster up of ourselves, right? Yes. Our good works... Our good faith that we muster up ourselves is literally dung in the eyes of God, right? If if our salvation was somehow resting on the faith that we can produce, it's no more efficacious than the, the good works we can produce or anything else that we can produce, which is all filthy and garbage and tainted by sin. But because God is the one who grants us this faith, because it's originally coming from a pure source, which is the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, it gets the victory. And that's what's important. Not the strength of it, right? Whether it's weak or strong, it gets the victory. Whether it's been assailed or not assailed, it gets the victory. Like that's the whole point of this chapter in both the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist is that faith receives Christ and therefore gets the victory. And that's that's what we have to understand. If any any system out there that defines faith in a way where it's possible, even hypothetically possible, for faith not to get the victory, you're talking about a substandard, sub-Protestant, sub-biblical understanding of right faith. Right on. And that's, if, if you take nothing else away from this, faith is that which, which rests and receives Christ. And because in Christ... We are more than conquerors. Faith always gets the victory. Faith is the evidence, the assurance, the hypostasis, the reality of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things unseen, right? It's the it's the reality which God gives us in which we anticipate and receive the promise which he has promised us. All of those things come together. And to be honest with you, like, I'm going to run through a wall at this point. Like, I'm going to do the Kool-Aid man thing. Because, like, what, oh, else, yeah. what else is there out there that's more beautiful than that? Yeah. That not only has Christ provided a way for salvation for us, that he's even provided for us the fact that we believe and trust that that's that way of salvation is out there and is out there for us. I feel like we're kind of like crossing over into assurance of pardon, like, like territory here. Like it's for you, like the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you trust him, it's evidence that he is for you. The fact that you trust him is already the evidence that he is on your side and he has already chosen and saved you. Amen. I love that. See, that's a fantastic way to leave. I'll say this as we draw to close. I was reading, of course, in Ephesians 2 in preparation and thinking about this. I don't know if everybody knows this, but I'll just ask you, Ephesians 2, what uh, part of your body do you think that makes me think of? <laughs> I'm going to say my forearm. That's a that's a question that people don't who don't know me are like that is the weirdest thing anyone's ever said. I know that's said. why that's why I asked it this way. Do you have you ever disclosed on this podcast what is on your forearm? Well, you have something on both. Yeah, it's true. So on my right forearm, and this is something I got as sort of like a constant reminder. Uh, I have uh, it's it's Greek. It says "but God." It's from Ephesians two four, and like that is like the encapsulation of the gospel, yes. right? No matter what it is that you think you deserve, if you're a Christian, you can say, but God. You think you deserve sickness and death and destruction. The truth is you do, but God. You think you deserve hell? You do, but God. You think that God is your enemy? It's true, but God. Like all of those things encapsulated in that sort of like beautiful hinge point in Ephesians 2, that's the reality of the gospel is that no matter what you think, no matter what you actually deserve, 
if God is for you, God has done what it takes to rescue you from that, to rescue you from himself. Even. Yes. Um, so yeah. And then faith is, faith is the thing God gives us by which we lay claim to and receive that promise. And that's, yes. that's the thing we have to understand. It's not by works. It's not by our own ability to drum up intellectual, uh, knowledge. It's not by our ability to do all sorts of amazing things, to, to be really well put together, to have a perfect Instagram feed, to have the right books on your shelf. It's none of those things. It's simply that God has given you the ability to receive those promises passively, to receive them as the instrument, and to rest in that, in Christ himself. Right. And that hinge point, that, but God, of course, being rich in mercy, making us alive with Christ, raising us up in the heavenly places. All those things are great. The application of all those things is also a gift, which is faith. And I like what you said. This is a great reminder in trusting and having that intellectual assent in believing in exercising those component or constituent elements of faith. This is God showing that he is for you. You don't get to that place unless God has put you into that place. And once he puts you into that place, he saves you in that place. He stays you in that place. It may be challenged or assailed, but I like what you said. It gets the victory. You know, anything else we try to do does not get the victory. You know, like New Year's resolutions do not get the victory. New promises do not get the victory. New diets do not get the victory. What gets the victory, and this just shows that anything in and of ourselves, even if there's a small part that I have to play, it's not going to get the victory. It's going to become stale, stagnant, too hard. I won't have the wherewithal, but God through faith always gets the victory. And if we have something in us, so to speak, that is getting the victory, then we must know that comes from God because everything in us will not get the victory. And we know, yeah. we know that all too well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say this and then we'll close. I think we feel like, I feel like we say, I'll say this and then we close like a thousand <laughs> times. The, the classic thing, and this was something, I don't know what, honestly, I don't remember whether it's R.C. Sproul or Michael Horton. I'm going to guess both of them have probably said it at some point, so it may not matter. Um, the reality is that when we say justification, I'm, a, I'm, I'm okay, I'm hearing it in R.C. Sproul's voice right now. So I'm going to say R.C. Sproul. The reason we say justification by faith alone is because what that really means is it's justification by Christ alone. Right. Right. And and faith is the passive receptacle by which we receive Christ. Right. We think of receiving salvation, particularly justification through faith, and that's true, but it's because we receive Christ. And so, as you said, when we say that faith gets the victory— just like when we say justification is by faith alone, we mean justification is by Christ alone. When we say faith gets a victory, what we really mean is Christ gets the victory. Right on. Christ gets the victory, and we receive that victory as we received him and all of his benefits. Justification, uh, you know, sanctification. In some sense, even election is a benefit received received as we receive Christ. That's yes. kind of a weird Bardian way to say that. And that's not what I mean. Don't throw stones at me. I'm not a Bardian, but we receive every good thing that the father gives us through Christ. And so faith is important for us to acknowledge is the recipient or the receptacle of that. It's that it's the open hand, which God places all of his gifts into. It's the open embrace. It's our open arms that God embraces us and we return that embrace to him. And God always takes the initiative in that. An open hand avails you nothing unless somebody puts something into it for you. If I just stick my hand out in the air, it doesn't give me anything. If someone then puts a ham sandwich or a $500 $500 (laughs) check 
or a John Calvin bobblehead, whatever it is, whatever that gift is, my open hand doesn't generate good things. Uh, My open hand receives good things that someone else gives me. Yeah. So I think this is a great topic. Again, like you can never get too basic and foundational when you're talking about this because it's such a central concept to everything that it means to be a reformed or reformational Christian. And that's because it's central to everything that, that God has to say in the Bible about what, right. what salvation is and how it functions. So Jesse, thanks for picking this topic. I'm glad we talked about it. I think it's been a good conversation. Again, not the definitive episode. This might be the first time we've ever said that, but this is a topic that we will and have to keep coming back to as Christians because we have, just as we have to preach the gospel to ourselves, we need to hear the gospel preached every Lord day to us regardless of whether we've come to faith or not. This is such a central part of that, that we need to keep hearing it. We need to keep coming back to it again and again and again and again. All right. Before we close, we got to take care of a couple of pieces of business for all of our listeners. So as you said, we have some series coming up. So there's a couple of things going on. So I'll do one and I'll kick it back to you. So the first is that we're going to be doing like a whole primer series on theology proper. It's going to be awesome. I'm super stoked about it. I know in the past, a lot of others have loved joining in with us on these types of conversations and we're going to start that out. So that's number one. The second thing I'll kick over to you because we're going to also be doing a little bit of some more giveaways, right? Yeah. We mentioned it briefly a couple weeks ago is, is God has been gracious to us through the generosity of his people. And so not only are we able to uh, take in enough through our generous Patreon supporters to pay the bills and keep the lights on, but we've we've started to recognize there's a little bit left over uh, from that. So do, please, if you give, don't take that as a, we don't need your money anymore. We're happy to take uh, your funds if you want to support us and put them to good use. But the good use we're going to put this to is we're going to start to give away some books. So the first book that we are going to give away And uh, we'll give you more details on the deadlines and stuff. But we are going to give away, uh, I just lost it on my screen. We're going to give away, uh, it's funny because Jesse probably wouldn't want to give this away. We're going to give away a book (laughs) called Covenantal (laughs) Baptism, which is written by Jason Helopoulos. We'll just call him Greeky McGreekerson. Uh, And this is one of three in a set called the Blessings of Faith series, which is published by PNR. So we're going to put up a, one of those, uh, Check us out on Facebook, go follow us on Twitter, jump around, do hopscotch on your one foot kind of a uh, modules at reformbrotherhood.com slash contest and uh, check it out. The Other than following the different steps there and, you know, looking at our page on Facebook, there's not any extra requirements. Uh, what is it they used to say? No purchase. Uh, no purchase is necessary. Uh, but yeah, check it out and we'll just give away a book every month. And uh, so you can always go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest going forward and enter to win whatever contest we're running at the time. Sometimes it might be a book. Sometimes it might be Reform Brotherhood gear. We're going to give you something. We're going to give away something. So you can always check that out and we'll make sure to announce that on the show. But we're excited that our, our donors have been generous enough to be able to do this. And we are only going to give away books that we think are really, really useful. Right on. So whether you're a Paedo-Baptist or a Credo-Baptist, uh, I think understanding the Paedo-Baptist argument is beneficial for yes. everyone. Agreed. Uh, and so giving away this book, even though I kind of rib at and, and joke that Jesse wouldn't be happy about it, I'm sure Jesse would, would be more happy. I love that happy. this is happening. Or he would have told me not to give away this book. No, I love this. In fact, I would argue you can't be a Credo-Baptist if you haven't looked at the Paedo-Baptist position. If you know nothing about that, then really... I, you're, you don't have a firm understanding. That's for sure. It's true. It's yeah. So true. here's the, the third and the last piece of business is because we're going to be doing this whole primer series, we'll be going systematically through lots of topics in 
theology proper and Reformed theology in particular as it applies to theology proper, we know that we're going to want to have a little bit of breaks in between there. So, loved ones, the voicemail box is empty. I know this because I cleaned it out. Now, we listen to everything, and we've tried to incorporate over the course of these many years now the different things that people have left us, but we want to go back to doing some more regular question casts, but here's what we need from you. We'd love for you to send in your questions, but to keep your questions 30 seconds or shorter. That's the challenge. Nice and succinct, nice and quick, so we can bring them into the cast so people can hear you in your own voice asking. Or if you want to say something, that's fine. Shorter is better. That means that we can keep it moving. It allows us to address the question. Also help you maybe distill down what it is that you're exactly after. So if you wouldn't mind leave us a voicemail with your brief but important question. If you want to know what's on Tony's other forearm, you can ask that question. You can ask it in less than 30 seconds for sure. Tony, what is the voice mailbox phone number? That's actually what's tattooed on my other arm. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's 607-444-2767, which spells... Bros. Bros. So if you call us 607-444-2767, leave a brief voicemail. If you live outside of the United States, we do have a number of international callers. You don't feel like That's paying true. through the nose to leave us a voicemail. You can always record your uh, question, 30 seconds or less. Uh, you can record that on an MP3 and email that to info at reformbrotherhood.com or reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, and we will treat that just like a voicemail. And I'll be honest, we we want to prioritize voice questions more than we do written questions, just because uh, we're committed to this being more than just a brotherhood of me and Jesse. It's really a, a family discussion among the people of God, and, and we want to hear other voices too. So again, 607 444 2767, or you can email us an MP3 voice recording to reformbrotherhood at gmail.com or info at reformbrotherhood.com. Okay, I'm about to throw the tagline to you, but there's one more thing I got to say. This is not business per se, but it is a word just of gratitude. And that is, I want to especially thank our brother Stephen, who joined this week as a Patreon supporter for the podcast. Brother Stephen, thank you so much. Again, we, if anybody ever wonders, like, why do your voices sound so good? Why is it that the mix is so nice? It, this is because why is it that the podcast gets distributed and actually gets downloaded at like a reasonable speed? It's because all these things actually do cost money and this will always and forever be free. And so we really rely on those who give to us and they give generously. There's a lot of people that give a little bit and that little bit adds up to a lot. So we're so thankful. So brother Stephen, thanks for jumping on and thinking of us and joining in the brotherhood with your financial support. We are so grateful. So with that said, now, Tony, after many, many delays, until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Oh.